before we get started, I have two, two quick things I want to update you guys on. Uh, well, one is a call out. Um, the other, though, is Pastor Greg, as you all know, he's retiring at the end of the year. And there's, there's not a high level of buzzing going like, uh, there's kind of a low rumble of, of people like, well, what are we, what are, you guys have a plan? We do. We've been thinking about this almost nothing else since September when he let the staff know that, that those are his plans. He's been gone for the last couple of weeks, and the staff's feeling it. Um, it's just weird not having him around. Uh, he was in St. something down in the Caribbean, um, and he's back now. He got home about 2 a.m., uh, but I just want you to know that, that the uh, executive team, the elder board in particular, we've informed the consistory of what we think our plan is, uh, how we move and shuffle people around a little bit, uh, and what other resources we might need. We, as we solidify those things and roll them out, we will let you know. Uh, Greg has set the bar very high for pastoral care and congregational life, and uh, even funerals and um, uh, divorce care and grief share and all those kind of things. So we're, we're trying to get our hands around everything that Greg does uh, so that when he leaves, those things still get done and get done at the standard that he set. For those of you watching online, if you're guests with us or if you're guests with us here and you don't know, Pastor Greg, is uh, he retires at the end of this year. He gave us that 11-month notice, which is plenty of time. Uh, uh, but anyway, that's what I'm referring to. The other thing is at the end of every full staff meeting, at the end of every uh, exec team meeting, at the end of every elder meeting, at the end of every consistory meeting, one of the things that we do to provide to, uh, culture to try to remind ourselves of not just looking looking for what we're missing, but also celebrating the things that are done well. Uh, and with this whole idea of 500 neighborly acts that we're committed to uh, for this year as a congregation, um, one that won't get recorded, so I'm going to record it here. I'm going to call out three people, Bob Borst, Kevin Gruppen, and Brian Lamar. Um, I've seen them serve this church over and over and over again, uh, heating and cooling facility, all that kind of stuff. But this past week, they, got, they took a Wednesday and they installed a new rooftop unit HVAC stuff uh, that, that has been not working for a long time. So they took, they took days off of work. Bob provided that unit for us at his cost, and those three men spent the day installing it. So just for the love of their church. And I just want, I know, is Kevin here? I don't see Bob. I do know that Brian's here. So I'm, I know you hate this stuff, but people need to know that you love your church and that you've, and, and you serve it. So thank you very much for that. Yeah, give him a hand. Not just him, but them too. But here's the one that matters. He knows this is coming. I don't know if you've ever walked in the hallway over here back on the other side of the gym where the drinking fountain is and smelled the sewer gas. It's awful. My office gets pumped with sewer gas for the last... Well, it's been that way. It's the infant nursery. It, it's awful. And sometimes it goes away, and then it comes back. And I, when I meet with people, when they walk in, I have to go, it's not me. <laughs> it's, and I've talked about it one time here. I, I, I brought it up on, on, on Friday last week to Kent, or Thursday last week, and I said, look, it, it's, it's not fixed. We thought we accidentally fixed it during the construction project this summer. And she goes, well, Brian and those guys will be here on... On Wednesday, so we'll talk to him then. Brian, I think Bob found out what the problem was. Brian brought in a, uh, a plumber on, um, on Friday. And yesterday and today were the first two days I've entered my office without a hint of yuck. So if you've ever gone all winter with kids and spilled stuff in your car and it starts to smell when it starts to heat up outside and, and then you get it professionally detailed and you just go and you forget and you walk in and you're like, oh, yes, 
That is how I feel this morning. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, that has nothing to do with the message. Um, so we're in John 6. Now, a I, I, couple, couple things. I will remind you that John, the gospel, the gospel writer here, he's one of the disciples, um, but he, unlike the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he rearranges things. So he's not as concerned with the chronological order of Jesus' ministry as he is what Jesus did and what it communicates not only to people that don't yet know God, uh, but those who were Jewish in their upbringing. So he does a lot of things that he, he records the things that Jesus said, but he records them in such a way that people have callbacks to other things in their history of a people. Here, uh, last week, he, he was at the, um, at the Festival of Sabbath, which was a weekly festival, and he, he, he healed a man, but then he went on to speak and to interact uh, with the Jewish leaders to show them where this is what you think God is saying, but this is what God is actually saying. And here, it's the Passover festival. And in Passover, if you'll remember, the, the people, God's people were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And then God called up a leader, Moses, who was also known as a prophet, um, and he sent him to Egypt to rescue God's people. And when he rescued God's people, there was a water miracle. Remember when the parting of the Red Sea and they walked across as if on dry land? And then later, there was a food miracle that God provided manna for 40 years in the desert. But we also know from that, that that the people of God got sick of manna. If you had to eat peanut butter and jelly every day for 40 years, you might go, are you kidding me? I mean, you might get a little frustrated. The word said, the word, they grumble. They were grumbling. And Moses referred to them as the rabble. And they were like, we want some meat. We want some meat. We want to go back to Egypt because at least we had leeks. And, and God goes, you want meat? I'll give you meat till it comes out your nose, which is kind of gross. Um, so I, having those ideas in mind, the water miracle and the provision miracle, help you see how the Jews who would read this passage, the, the, the first part of John 6, they would read it and they're like, oh, 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 is he saying he is? So Jesus shows up. And there's a 5,000 people, or 5,000 men, there's probably closer to 15,000 people. They show up, this is right at the beginning of John 6, and, and one of the, I think it's Philip, he, he goes, hey, how are we going to feed all these people? Eight months' wages wouldn't give these people even a bite. And Jesus goes, well, what are we going to do? And, they, and one of them brings up a kid who's got a sack lunch, five barley loaves, which says that the kid's poor. That's what barley, and they're, they're about this big around, and a couple of couple of fish. And you may not know this, but this happened to Elisha, the prophet. Um, uh, let me see, make sure I got that. Second Kings 4, um, when a guy brought 20 loaves of barley, barley loaves, and Elisha says, well, feed him. Well, we can't feed these hundred people. Um, he goes, just trust me. And God did. So the way John tells the story and the way Jesus did it, it's not only that he fed these people, it's that he's showing that he surpasses even Elisha, the prophet. And then there's that water miracle, the separation. So, it's, again, it's around Passover. This is what's on everyone's mind. And Jesus sends his disciples back across the lake, and he goes up to pray for a while at the lake, the sea. It's called the um, Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, and Lake Gennesaret. It's all the same lake. It's, not, it's about half the size of Lake Okeechobee, which is the, 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 the largest inland freshwater lake in the United States. So it's about half that size. It's a big lake, but you can travel around it on foot. So he sends them across. 
cross, um, and he goes up to pray, but in the middle of the night, he shows up uh, walking on the water. So Moses, the great prophet, helped the people walk through the water, but Jesus surpasses even Moses by walking on top. And there's a reference there to Job uh, chapter 9, verse 8, if you're a note taker and you want to go back and see that later. Um, he, the, the, the other miracle that happens in this whole thing is that, that we, all, we, just, we just read right by, is that Jesus showed up and got in the boat, and then <laughs> they were on the shore. So I don't know what the teleportation miracle, we don't talk about that a whole lot, but there's something weird that happened there. So that's what's happened. Now the people who, God fed, who Jesus fed on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, they saw that he didn't get in the boat with his disciples, that he went up to the mountain to pray, and that, that, that day they were looking for him, and they were trying to, because maybe, hey, his disciples aren't around, we got him to ourselves. And they can't find him, so they worked their way around to where they knew the disciples went, and that's where our story picks up. And I want you to know that Jesus is saying some things to the people that they don't want to hear. Just like when he said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, who was a, 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 a Jewish leader, he came in the middle of the night to Jesus because he didn't want to be seen. And uh, John talks a lot about light and dark. Uh, and he shows up and they have this exchange. And Jesus goes, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom. And, and Nicodemus is like, oh, I'm going to crawl back into my mother's womb. I, and we're so familiar with that terminology. I had a friend in college that, you know, someone said you need to be born again. He goes, I got it right the first time. We get so used to it that we forget about how outstanding or astounding or even what? Confusing that, that kind of a statement might be. You're going to find and hear some other things in here. And I want you to know that the end of this discourse that Jesus has, a bunch of people who were following him around walked away. They were done. And I don't want that to happen to you, but I don't think we take what Jesus says here as seriously as we should. I know I don't. I learned that this week, and it just kind of blows my mind. So here, here's the progression. It says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, teacher, rabbi, uh, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, I tell you, I'm going to tell you the truth. Uh, you're, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. And then they, important word here, work, because they key in on this. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Now, they, they key in on the work. So they say, they asked him, uh, what must we do? Uh, what must we do to do the works God requires? Now, this is not unlike the rich young man who walks up to Jesus and says, "Good teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life?" And Jesus goes, "Well, you know the commandments," and he lists them. And he goes, well, "Yeah, I've done. I've kept all those since I was a kid." So he's asking, "What do I? What's the least I can do and make it in?" You know, what does God require that I do so that I get what I want? That's kind of what they're getting at here. And then, and Jesus says, Jesus answers, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. What is God doing and working, willing and acting in us? He wants for us to believe in the one he sent, Jesus. And they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe in you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, this is something I didn't know till this week. Um, and it's, I don't know that it's exciting, but it does help us see a little bit of the dynamic of what's going on here. Think about Christmas for a moment. When you picture Jesus or Joseph and Mary, and they, they walk into 
you know, they, they show up in Bethlehem, and when there's no room for them in the inn, you always see the little kid with the bathrobe. Like, there's no room for you in the inn. Like, it's the, like the innkeeper was this terrible person who just wasn't hospitable. Um, and then the picture you have, though, is what typically what we see um, in, in, in the nativity scenes. It's like a little barn, right? And, and there's the little drummer boy and the ox and lamb and then the statues. And, um, but that's not what an inn looks like. There's this, I, this picture we have of what was going on, but it's not the picture that it was actually there. The people of God had this idea, this kind of legend, this mythology of, of God having a storehouse of manna in heaven. And when they were wandering around in the desert for 40 years, he opened up the storehouse and let it fall from heaven to provide for them. So they have this understanding that when the Messiah comes, that storehouse will open up again, and they, won't have, they get to eat without having to work. So there's this little, little nuance going on here that maybe we don't always see, but as it is written, he gave, he gave, us, heaven, or he gave, he gave us bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, I, I'm going to tell you the truth. It's not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, we get this. We, if, if you've grown up in the church, you understand what Jesus means when he says, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the bread that comes down from heaven. Um, and they go, sir, from now on, give us this bread. They're still keyed in on what do we get? What, basically, I call them Jesus bits. They're looking for the little things that God will give us to reassure us that he's got us, but that don't necessarily mean that we're all in. Like, I want to be rescued when my, when, if, my, if I lose, if, if a tire goes flat on the road. When I, I was rescued in, in 1989 when I was severely injured, and God did send some Christian people there that took care of me, kept me alive. Um, we, we want God to rescue us, or when we mess everything up, we kind of want, want God to just come in and fix what I've done wrong. And, and I'm not saying that God doesn't rescue, that he doesn't provide. He absolutely does. But it, Jesus is going to start getting, he's going to turn up the heat here a little bit because they don't have the perspective that he wants us to have. Why don't you give us this bread? And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. And just so you know, ego a me, I am. If you translate God's, God the Father's name, Yahweh, I am that I am. If you translate that from Hebrew to Greek, you get ego a me. So Jesus is saying, I am. He's claiming to be God. This is one of the seven I am statements or ego a me statements in John. And he's saying, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never go thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me, he's talking about people here, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, will never, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all the people that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will, it's the third time he's talking about God's will, the Father's will. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them on the last day. At this, the Jews began to grumble right back to the desert 
about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he, then say, how can he now say, I came down from heaven? Jesus, just like God, when he says the, the rabble and like, I'll give you meat that comes out of your nose. Stop grumbling amongst yourselves, Jesus said. And now he goes further. And this is, this is uncomfortable, especially in the original language. And I want you to know that we kind of have it metaphorically speak, but the people that heard it the first time, this kind of language got the church in the early first and second century in pretty, pretty big trouble because they had love feasts where they ate flesh and drank blood. They were seen as cannibals. This is where they get it. Look at how, how far Jesus goes. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Again, Jesus saying, God is teaching you right now. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth. He who believes in me has, has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And then they began to argue or sharply amongst themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? It's disgusting. And he goes further. Jesus said to them, I'll tell you the truth. Unless you eat my flesh, eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats, and by the way, in the Greek, this is whoever gnaws my flesh and slurps my blood remains in me, and I in him. This is weird. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who eats on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Imagine having a guest preacher show up and preach that about himself. And then a bunch of these people, they got ticked and they're done with him. It's gross. And because if you've been raised in the church or even in West Michigan, you've heard enough about the bread of life, the living water, those kind of things, that the light of the world, I am the way, I'm the door. We, we, we kind of get this and we've got this metaphor in our head and we understand that he's saying something that is physical, but he means something spiritual. Just like he was saying to Nicodemus, you got to be born again. He wasn't saying, yes, you have to climb back into your mother's womb. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying every, you have to start from the beginning again. You have to go through a painful process of, of becoming something new. And as you become something new, you are completely and utterly and totally dependent on another being to give you meaning and life and education and change who you are. Everything, you have to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He's saying the same thing here. He's quite literally saying, man, humanity does not live on stuff. 
man, humanity, lives on God. He's telling us that we have to take Jesus, who we see in the flesh, in the gospel, according to John, and make him internal, change everything. He, if, he has to be the thing that matters most above all else. Love is patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered. It keeps no right, it's not rude, it's not proud, it doesn't brag. We're also, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Which one did I miss? I always miss one. It's usually goodness. He, if we think about some of the things he tells us, he's saying that everything has to be different. Everything changes, that the only thing we depend on is the fact that we belong to God, body and soul, in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'm con convinced that I don't believe that enough, that I don't take this seriously enough. If he's willing to go, yeah, I'm the bread, or, you know, the bread that came down from heaven, well, that's actually the one whom God sent. And well, yeah, but so give us some of this bread. No, you don't get it, folks. It's, it's bigger than that. I'm the bread of life, and you must ingest me. You must make me part of you. I mean, yes, this is Eucharistic. Yes, it talks about that it's, it's, it's a communion kind of thing, and we just talked about that last week, that, that this, when we take the bread, the bread, you know, this is my body, which is for you, and the blood that is poured out for the forgiveness of sins, it's blood of a new covenant, and we say that, that this is about communion, it's about hope, and it's, but, we, but we say it's a means by which God gives us grace. Jesus is saying, yes, it is. But what it represents is the grace. Does everything change because Jesus, when he sends his spirit, the spirit no longer dwells in a tabernacle, but between two lungs? Is your life absolutely transformed because you ate Jesus? Because you made him part of you because he gave himself for you. He gave his life, the bread of life, so that we can be changed. And I, I'm like, yeah I, yeah, I get that. But would I do whatever he told me to do? I mean, this should change how I love my wife, how I see my kids, how I pray for you. It should change where I live, what I spend my money on. It should change everything. And if God showed up today and said, will you give your life for me? I think I could say yes. But if he said, would you give up bass fishing for me? I might say no. And that's ridiculous. It's ri the boat that I'm still paying for. God, if he said, look, Trent, I want you this, I want you to give this up. It's the one hobby I have six months of the year because of where I live. I only get to do it six months, and that's if spring comes early. But you see what I'm saying? There's a, there's a part of me that's like, yeah, I, will, I might go to the flame for you, but don't make me give up what I like. Then that means I'm not completely and utterly transformed. I don't see Jesus as actually the bread that gives life. Apparently, I haven't made him all that he could be. He tells us, that Paul speaks of it this way. He says, I know you guys all know that, right? It's Greek. He made up words. He said, when he's talking about praying or, or giving glory to God, he says, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. Okay, immeasurably more. 
infinitely more abundantly above all we could ask or even dream up. That's how big God is. And when he says, my grace is sufficient for you, he's saying the same thing. It's not the same word, but he's saying the same thing, that it's infinitely more abundantly above all we could ask or even need. He gives us all of that. It is a complete and utter transformation. So do I really believe that? Yes. Do I believe that? I don't don't know. I don't know. I don't think so because I don't know. What about you? This is not a condemnation. This is not an accusation. This is a, if this is what Jesus is saying and it costs people to walk away, what about you? Is he what sustains you? Is he what nourishes you? Is he what settles things? for you? Or are we looking for Jesus bits? Little things that let us know that God's not mad at us. Little things that let us know that if at 2.30 in the morning you're, lo- you're, you're broke down later this, af- later this evening in, in a snow pile between Grand Haven and here, you got someone to call. Or is it actually, does it actually change who I am because of whose I am. He's not saying be Christian cannibals. But he is saying, folks, when we think we've got it, it's even more. God is infinitely more abundantly above all, or even what you could dream up, more than you need. And somehow, someway, I'm convinced that I often settle for less. And he tells me in here that if you don't make me in you, as far as it depends on you, there's no life in you. Now, I also want you to know, I don't want to get, <laughs> we got done, I left it right there at the last service, and then going to do the songs, I'll do, do my, little, uh, my little sum up at the end, and I was going to give the hope back when someone walked out. I'm like, I don't want them walking out thinking that their salvation's in jeopardy. I'm not, that's not what I'm getting at. But he says, look, look, I'm not letting anyone that God calls to me, if, if, if you have a draw toward Jesus, that means the Father has already nudged you or pulled you toward him, and Jesus will not lose any of you. Your salvation is secure. But are you, am I, the person, the people, are, are we who God wants us to be? Are we, do we count on him more than we count on anything else? Do we trust him more than we trust ourselves? Or do we just want Jesus to make our lives easier and rescue us when we mess things up? If he is indeed the bread of life, and bread is that which gives us sustenance and that which God provides for us, he is God's provision. That means the thing that matters before, if you're doing a budget, food, shelter. Those are your first two things. Then bills and debts and that kind of stuff. But food keeps you alive. Shelter keeps you alive. Everything else comes after that. And he's saying, I am the food that you must live on. Because if you don't eat the food that I give you, you die. Do I really believe that? Yep. I don't know. What about you? 
He's not going to turn you away. He will raise you up on the last day. He will never forsake you. He will never leave you. But when he said to that rich young man, what must I do to have eternal life? Well, you know, the commandments keep them. I've kept all those since I was a kid. One thing you lack, sell everything you have, give to the poor, follow me. And that guy walked away. What's the one thing I lack? What's the one thing you lack? One thing you lack. What is he asking? What is he showing? What is he highlighting? Where you don't depend on him, but you depend on you. I think that's a fair question to ask any Christian. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear that that might be the only question to ask every Christian. Let's pray. Lord, you told us that the works that God requires is to believe the one he sent. You tell us that the will of the Father is that we believe the one you sent. And you tell us that if we, unless we make you part of us, unless we make you the part of us that matters most, then, then we might be missing the whole thing. So, Lord, you won't leave us. You won't forsake us. You won't lose any of us. You will raise us up. We, we know that. But help us understand what it means that you are our food that makes our lives live. Show us. Convict us where we need convicting. Encourage us where we need encouragement. And remind us that all of this you said to those people then and you're saying to us now is because you love us and you want to give us all that you have for us, not just the things that we'll settle for. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake and through his spirit. Amen. I know as a, as a preacher, sometimes when I hear other people preach and they, and they talk about some of the miraculous things that Jesus did and they just make them metaphorical or analytical, like, you know, that well, we all have to tear down our giant statues. And, and, and I, I just want to clear up the, the, the provision miracle of feeding 5,000 men, close to 15,000 people with some kid's sack lunch. I think he did it. And I think it's glorious. And that would be preachable all in and of itself. The fact that he, God, who created all things, who created the, the laws of, of, of physics and the way the universe works, can he decide to change his path when he walks on? Absolutely he can walk on water. No question about it. But why does he show us those things? It's so that we will know him. And we just sang a song that death was arrested and our life begins. You know that the God of the universe allowed himself to be arrested so then he could arrest death so that you don't suffer eternity without him, but you are bought back by the king of the universe? That is infinitely and more abundantly above all you could ask or even dream up. Let's live like that matters. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine on you. Be gracious to you. The Lord turn his countenance to you, toward you, smile at you, give you peace. And I know I'm spitting. And all of God's people say, amen. Go with and in the peace of Christ.